This episode of Into the Boundary is powered by Thomas Financial Group. If you enjoy our episodes, make sure you like and subscribe to our YouTube channel for more exclusive content. You can also listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. How you doing? It's Wayne Green. Hey, what's up? Um, I'm Keisha Hampton. Yo, what's going on, folks? It's your boy, Abdul Rahim Laquan, or Senior. I'm Dennis Shaw. I just did Into the Boundary with Lou Mobley. I want to thank you for giving me the chance to come up here on this platform and tell my story. Hey, man, if you're an athlete and you're looking to get your word out, Looking to get your story out. I'm up here with Lou Mobley. He's, he's doing good things over here. Get up here and get with my guy, Lou Mobley. Ah. Welcome to Into the Boundary, the podcast with no boundaries, where sports meet real life. I'm your host, Lou Mobley. And today, we are joined by a seventh round draft pick in the 2004 NFL Draft. Three-time high school All-American, three-time All-State selection, three-time All-Conference selection, Played Division I football at Rutgers University, where he was a three-time All-Big East selection. Arena Bowl champion with the Philadelphia Soul in 2008. He played for the New York Giants and the Houston Texans. And lastly, he is the founder of more than a sport, Raheem Orr. Oh. here, bro. Finally got me out. Yeah, man, I've been trying to run you down for how many weeks now, man? I've been a few weeks. But I'm here now, man. I'm here now, and I'm happy to be a part of your podcast, man. I'm excited uh, to give you this exclusive, exclusive podcast, my brother. Yeah, man. We already know the story's crazy, man. Um, Just jumping right into this. So we both mentor. We work in the inner city. Correct. We have worked in the inner city, and we work with the youth. If you had to start in one area to fix what's going on in these neighborhoods, what would it be? Personally, me growing up, and I always tell this to the youth that I deal with and um, talk to now, I always tell them it took a village. Personally, me, we lost a village. The village was a bubble of so many things that you could put into that village. Um, you had your guys on the corner, even though they were doing the wrong thing, they knew about you and they knew what you inspired to do. So right. you had those guys to push you in that direction. If you was doing something wrong on the block, not your mom, your mom at work, your your buddy's mom's going to whoop your butt or your buddy's dad going to jump on you. If the ice cream truck come up the street, you know, every kid got ice cream. No. This kid, this kid graduate, the block celebrates because one of us, one of ours made it out. Not, oh, this African-American young man or this Hispanic young man or this Polish young man or this Mexican young man. And I'm speaking from my block because these are the type of nationalities that I had on my block. Right. We all we all made it out. Yep. And I think one of the things that we lost is the actual village, our our identity. The village was our our, our identity. Excuse me, because I struggle with certain words to pronounce. But the, the village, the neighborhood, in a sense, was our was our identity. And we lost that. And it's not hard to see how we lost it because you have regentrification, all these type of things going on in these same neighborhoods. And so now the identity is once again being changed and being influenced away from our values. Right. So that's one of the things that I definitely notice what's going on with our neighborhoods and with our with our cities and our inner city young men and women. 
I'm gonna just give you a couple other like things that like me and my guys, you know, people of our type of cloth that's about change. Correct. We group we have group texts and messages and we have debates about this type of stuff all the time, you know, with all the killing going on in the city right now when it seems like it's like killing for sport and it's just real you know, on the surface level, it's, like, it's all silly. And I was like, it's always a lot to unpack the dynamics of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, one of my buddies said that he really think it's a generational wealth thing. Like that a lot of us die and don't pass on life insurance policies and further our families or mass incarceration. So we grew up without fathers and a lot more stress on the women growing up. So you, you, you pinpoint it takes a village and like them guys and their perspectives, they thought of wealth and money you know, jobs, you know, other guys thought of, you know, not having fathers. It all starts with being fathers and stuff like that. So I just wanted to get your perspective, you know. I wouldn't disagree with that. Growing up, our village wasn't talking about finances and illiteracy and finances, saving a dollar. Right. A lot of times in that village, you probably was going to my buddy going on the street and with a note from your mom or somebody say, hey, can I borrow $20 to get some bread in the house or can I get some bread or something of that nature? So a lot of it was financially, it was a struggle for everyone. Right. And we all kept each other uplifted and, and, and we kept each other from missing those really hard times. Okay. So we were, so the focus couldn't be on finances. The focus was more on if your dad not there, but my dad is here. My dad becomes your dad. So the void of not having a father was kind of filled in a sense. Right. But it wasn't. It was filled in a sense for the for the village or for the neighborhood. But it, once you leave outside of that village and neighborhood, in the in the really your 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 lack of not having a father or or a mother in the house, you're it's it's exposed now. Right. So we weren't taught to how to react to that being exposed. A lot of times it put us in a bad place because we see our counterparts that come from suburbia or a more upper class city and they have possibly two parents in the home and they see how, or they talk about things and you see it how it's totally different or, or you wish it could have been you, right? but we didn't have that opportunity. So we missed out on some of those things. But one thing that for myself have to be thankful for is some of my buddies that grew up on, on my block that had fathers that stepped in and said, hey, you know, just recently I buried um a guy I called my dad. His name was uh, Ralph Yamato. He's a Cuban immigrant. His son is Jason Yamato. It's my best friend, my brother. And we buried him the other day. And, you know, I, I look and I see the family and everybody. And I was just like, man, like, I feel how y'all feel. And my biological father, who was also, you know, there in my, in my life. And we went through some changes because I was one of those kids, too, that my father wasn't there. Right. Uh, my father was a, a street guy got high, prison, jail, wasn't there for me. Um, the one thing I can say, though, to kind of just harp on that is that when he was in jail, he was sober. So I was getting some type of mentoring, right. whatever little mentoring I was I was allowing or adhering to that I wanted to hear, um, that he did, he did a, a marvelous job on that sense. But he wasn't on the street when I was growing up and going through my trials and tribulation and through my transitional times. He wasn't there. So I was one of those kids, as I speak and and harp about it, I was one of those kids who grew up to see my counterpartners and and to say, I wonder how life would have been if my dad was there. Because I grew up in in the household 
um, just kind of talk about my upbringing. Uh, I grew up in a household with a single parent. But not only just was it just my mom as a single parent, you know, I had, you know, my, my aunt and she was married and my uncle was similar to my dad, but he wasn't in jail. Okay. So really was like absent. He was absent there as well. You know what right. I'm saying? So, but it was my aunt, my grandmother, my mom, and we all lived in, you know, my grandparents' house. And that was honestly was was the the focal point of my village. My house was the focal point. Everybody knew my house was always open no matter what's going on. You need a meal, my house. You need something going on, my house. You need to wash your clothes, my house. Like you want to come hang out, my house. And but we had other houses, but you know, my house was like the party house. So everybody knew to come and if you want to have a good time or let loose. Not so much in a, like drinking and getting high like that because that wasn't allowed in my house. But one of the things, if you want to come and have a good time, you know, a holiday come around, we're cooking out. Yeah. We had the pool in the yard. So we had, you know, we had, even though we lacked, I lacked my father's stuff, you know, my mom, my grandparents, my auntie, and everybody made sure we had sort of, I could say, the best things that we could possibly have at those moments, you know. But um, just to kind of get back to the original question, yes, the lack of a father, the lack of financial literacy, um, the lack of guidance, um, the lack of older generation dying and not and not really instilling in us. And for our generation, it's hard because, you know, Papa was a rolling stone. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that was a lot of our situations, right? So Papa wasn't there to teach us something. So we we missed that mentoring from Papa. A lot of our mentoring came from a woman. You know what I'm saying? And so the fact that a lot of our mentoring came from a woman. When we be, when we got older, our deal was we got to figure out who we are as men. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And the fact that we had to figure out who we are as men, it takes away from us initially getting out there and becoming mentors at young ages to help our young generation be the to be the one that's out in on the neighborhood and pushing those young men that's doing these silly nonsense things to push them away from that. So. We weren't there to do that because we're worrying about ourselves. We're trying to make up for, for what we feel we lost. Right. And we're trying to make up for it. And unfortunately, now those young men that we not so much purposely ignored, but the fact that we didn't devote our time to them, like maybe our generation before us have done, right. now you have them at our age and they don't know nothing because they wasn't taught nothing. So they're, so whatever they see on the computer, on the TV, they glorify it as if it's right, it's correct, as if it's actually a reality that you can sustain for long term, which you can't. Right. Even as, like, like rap and sports falls in the same kind of box. Excuse me, you can't rap forever. You can't play sports forever. Mm-hmm. What, is your, what is your next move? What is your end goal? What are you going to do with all this money that you have or this fame and glory that you developed from your craft, you know? And a lot of times we're not taught on how to manage these things, I guess you can say. But now as you but now you can see it, there's a change from rappers like Jay-Z, even a young man like Meek Mills, um, Kendrick Lamar, you know, J. Cole. Their message is totally different. Absolutely. I love listening to those guys. I always I've been a Jay-Z fan since Hawaii Sophie fame, you know, <laughs> and I still love Jay-Z and I admire Jay-Z because over the years, when people just thought Jay-Z was just rapping, and I was listening to his words, because I always felt he was a lyricist. And I seen I seen the change in the move to becoming, like, I guess you could say humanitarian philanthropist in, this, in the sense with his words. 
I seen that change a long time ago. And now you have rappers that's come behind him that that he interacts with, and you can see them now starting to change. Now you still have your rappers go out there, want to shoot everything up, mm-hmm. and sleep with every girl, and catch every STD, and all this other good stuff. But I don't listen to that stuff. I try to keep it away from my sons. But unfortunately, that's the music that's getting put out there. Right. You know that the kids are listening to because again, it's glorified for whatever reason. Um, coming here to to your podcast, say I was listening to you know Kenyatta Johnson, a couple of the young uh, a couple. Of, a couple other brothers on the radio and they was talking about we have to change the mindset of our young men not this, this generation come behind us and that's the purpose we have to do that and now that we have um an insight on financial literacy conflict resolution resiliency um all these things that we did we were not taught we have insight on these things and we have knowledge of them as well because on, on top of insight we have it's our job our duty to go out there and mentor these young men and women into Try to reverse the way the culture is going right now. Listen, it's the hardest job that's going to ever probably be done for an African-American man today. Right. It's going to be the hardest job. But if we if we get behind this thing, like we get behind sports and behind a bar when somebody's throwing a party at a bar, mm-hmm. we can change this environment because we devote the problem. One of the things I do also see with, the, with, the, with our community is that we devote our energy to the wrong things. You know? Um, a lot of people say they're about the kids, right? But when you're doing something for the kids and it might cost them something, they're gonna they they they're put they, you you're putting that person in the bind. I gotta go to the bar Friday and Saturday. But that money I'm used for the bar, I gotta they ask me to pay for my son or daughter to go to a camp. I'm gonna find a free camp and I gotta get to the bar. That's usually our decision making. I've seen it firsthand. I deal with it firsthand in my own community back home in North Jersey. And I'll never knock a person for that um, because I can never judge your pocket. But I can say this is why our community is the way it is today, because we value smoking weed, drinking liquor more than we value these kids not coming behind us doing that. And in a sense, you got guys on TV that drink, liquor, smoke, weed, look cool, and they got a, they got millions of dollars and thousands of dollars on their pocket. What you going? What you going to uh, gravitate to? Right. The money. Right. And one of the things we have to get to is, you know, a lot of these kids, our generation is motivated by money. So how can we take that motivation, right? Because it's for money, but we have to take that same motivation, right? And remind these kids of why they get into the, the senseless crap that they're getting into for the money. So now that we understand that, right, we have to find ways to put them on money, but positive ways, residual right. incomes. You want to be sleep, you want to make money, right? right? You want to be on vacation, you want to be making money, right? Or you want to just be successful, have your name a part of something where you could just constantly always live the way you live. You want to live a, a real nice, comfortable lifestyle. Some choose to be flashy. But we have to find a way to make that into a positive light and not allow the rappers, the drug dealers, and the negativity that that unfortunately is in our communities. We can't allow that to outbeat our positiveness energy. Right. You know what I'm saying? Our positive energy, excuse me. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's one of the things that um I don't know the answer, but I think that's something that I see. That I think if we could get a grasp on that, okay, that's that's one cornerstone that we have. Now, now what's the next task that we have to build on kind of because things that were done over the last 400 plus years is not going to be changed in the next 10 years at all it's not it's going to take 
if not that time, more. And we're in, unfortunately, we, we're not going to see that change, but we can see progress. Right. We want to see progress. I want to just see progress. The change, it's going to come, but I want to see progress. I want to see the mindsets of these young men and women change. And not only just African-American young men and women, I want to see the mindset of everybody change. We're all here. We're all here trying to become one. We're all, we're all fighting in a sense for the same goal. So why not try to change the mindsets of everyone, but focus on my, on my, on, on African Americans? Because honestly, we're, we're at the bottom of the barrel. I mean, you could come from a country two days away on a flight, take you two days to get back to the United States or whatever, however long it takes you, almost a day. You know, this flight took you to take a day, but we've taken a flight for a whole day to come to this country. And as soon as you enter this country, you're already, well, probably better off than the African American. Which is crazy. Which is crazy, right? Yeah. And what are we going to do? Complain about it? Complaining never, never changed nothing. Right. How do we fix that? How do we, how do we take our place? How do we get our, how do we uplift our, each other? You know, and one of the things you said, it's mentoring. We got to mention the mind. Everything starts with a thought, an idea, the mind. I just, like you said, I just think it's mentoring is so prevalent because of the lack of role models, lack of father figures, you know, and you have to be, you have to subscribe to something. So when you have to subscribe to something, you know, you subscribe to positive influence or negative influences. And normally on the positive side, you need like double the positive influences than there are negative. Because negative influence are, are things that take no effort to do. Mm-hmm. You know, hey, I'm going to walk to the corner. My, my guy has a, a blunt. We're going to smoke. We're going to get high. Then we're going to do something stupid. Mindless, easy, lazy. To be to be like, man, I'm not going to do that. Takes a lot more effort. So you'll need a lot more positive reinforcement than you would negative. So like you talk about having possibly, hopefully having a positive role model in the house. Maybe a friend. Maybe somebody at school. Maybe uh, at school program that you subscribe to. You're going to just need that much more to be successful. Correct. You know, you have to build, pretty much build up a army to fight against the, the distractions and all the nonsense in the neighborhoods, man. But, you know, I want to, you know, we can, we can shoot the shit about this whole thing all the way through. But right. I'm going to talk about you and your story. Okay. Man. Tell me about growing up and what part of North Jersey. Tell me tell me about your neighborhood and okay. some of the things you've been through up there. Cool. So, um, grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Uh, right next to North New Jersey, and Elizabeth is a um, it's a unique city, just like Newark's a unique city. Um, Linden's a unique city. All this is unique up there. But I grew up on I grew up um, again single single family home. Grew up in a, in a drug infested environment. Um, grew up on Third, you know, if you're from Elizabeth area, grew up on Third Street. Um, started off in Midtown and and grew up in Third Street, all on Third Street, whatever, which really where I became who, who I am, which is not no crazy old killer street, do nothing like that, because that wasn't my story. Um, but I did want to dabble in selling drugs, um, started smoking and drinking, getting high at a young age. I did all that, hung out, um, arrested, you know, as a youth. Basically, I was a troubled youth. Right. Um, what, really, what really helped me was was the fact that, you know, I came from a, a very, I came from good stock. We call it good stock. I come from good stock. Not saying I didn't value or respect my mom, my grandparents, my aunties and stuff, and the thing that they said, 
it was just my my friends had more of an influence on me than than the stuff they were saying. So the negativity of what me and my friends were doing had a strong influence on me with the positive things that they taught me and were teaching me at the time. So I gravitated to the negativity. Um, and, and thank God I'm here today to talk to it because um, there's a lot of guys I grew up with and not particularly on, on, on my block I grew up with, but there's guys I grew up with that's not here today because of the decisions that they have made in the street life. And I, like, again, um, you know, I thank God that I was given the opportunity and I call it a second chance. Um, the second chance for me was, um, you know, having a child early on in high school. And I have no clue of what it is to be a father because I didn't have that. Right. You know what I'm saying? So to this day, to the day, which is today, July 17th, 2019, every day is a learning experience for me as a father. Um, and I embrace every moment and every day. But growing up, you know, without my dad and stuff, man, you know, I had my daughter young. And again, I'm a troubled youth and I'm faced with a decision. Play football, go to play football, go to jail route like your daddy and a couple of your brothers. And again, I ain't no jail dude. And the reason why I say that, listen, I could fight, I did all that. I could do, I could do do, do anything you need me to do on the street, I could do it. That's 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 my stock. I'm I'm come from that. But I hate people telling me what to do. I don't like being around a bunch of men because I never had the experience being around men. So it, at that time, it, it I wasn't comfortable around men. And I like women, I love women. Even at a young age, of course, I had a baby young, so I love women. And none of these things was available in jail. Right. <laughs> so I knew goddamn well I jail wasn't for me. That's it. If I was going there and, 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 and getting accustomed to it, it would, I would adjust it like anybody else who had to go in there adjust. Um, again, thank God I didn't have to, you right. know. But, um, you know, I had my daughter, and I remember um, a guy named Mr. Walker. I mean, Allah have uh, mercy upon him and made his great spacious and me. But Mr. Walker's always telling me, man, you better than this. You better than this. You got to tighten up, man. Get yourself together. You can go somewhere with this football thing. In 1997, I ain't had too many transferable skills. I knew I could cook cocaine. I knew I could bag up marijuana. I knew what it meant to hustle. I knew how to run a shift hustling, but none of these things was going to feed my daughter long-term. Long so I sat one day and I remember sitting in my attic um, at the time, which was my apartment my mom had in the attic. And I remember talking to myself and telling myself, you got to turn this football thing into a, a job. Like you got, this, this got to become your life. Right. Not even understanding what I meant when I said it to myself. Again, no transferable skills. So the only thing I can do is play football. And I remember a guy telling me, um, I was sitting talking to a probation officer from Elizabeth. And he was telling me, listen, man, you know, all this stuff you're out here doing, you're going to lead yourself one day, man. You're going to mess around and kill somebody. And I'm going I'm to lock you up. He said, but if you know you're on that football field, you could kill somebody. You ain't never got to worry about me coming looking for you or nobody else in this city. It is what it is. It happened in the confines of the game. You know, you're talking about like controlled chaos sort of type stuff, right? Right. <laughs> Be like, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I said, I could do that. 
I'm mad as hell right now. I got a daughter who I don't know how to feed. I'm sick of ripping some of this weed and whatever else I'm doing, trying to feed this girl. I want to give her the best life I can give her. I don't know how. And my father and I here to teach me how to be a dad. What am I going to do? I'm going to go on that football field. I'm going to leash this hell on everybody I know. I was already, and, and my football career started off with me playing Pop Warner football. I really didn't. I, I'm going to be real. I ain't, I, I ain't no, I'm not, I'm big. And I'm just big naturally because my family's big. But I never was, like, I like sports. My brother was just, was big time in sports. And he went, he played professionally. And I used to always love how people just, like, just all oh, over my brother. I wanted that, but I didn't want to put in the hard work to play no sports. I'm just going to be honest. So sports was like, I liked them, I played them, but it wasn't, I didn't see that as my end, my end dream. Okay. Again, football was the only transferable skill I had, so I had to ride with it. But growing up, I didn't like sports. I played them, but it wasn't my passion. I just did it because that was what was going on in the neighborhood. And as we got older, we kind of put the basketball footballs away and picked up other utensils and kind of make our to occupy our time. And, you know, like I said, I got out there, man, and I began to... If you had that football, I wanted it. Or I want your soul for it, for you touching it. Mm. And that's how I played. Um, I was All-American, sophomore year, junior year, senior year. Um, We're talking about high school? I'm talking about high school football. Yep, high what, school. Did, what did you play at so high school? So I played high school football at Elizabeth High School. Okay. under Jerry Moore. Um, at the time, from 88 pretty much to when I was there, we was a nationally ranked team every year. Um, again, I was All-American, sophomore year, junior senior year. I was a top linebacker. Um, USA had me at top, American, uh, whatever, USA Today, and then some other papers had me in that country, too. I played with a gentleman who was a good friend of mine named TJ Duckett. Um, and I remember going to Nike camp and seeing this big old dude from Michigan, like, this dude was big, it was TJ. And I'm like, man, that's, that's T. And I remember sitting there, we talking, man, and, we, you know, we had a real good relationship right then and there, but we always kind of kept track of each other. And I remember going to Michigan State playing against him, you know, when he went to Michigan State and playing against him the year he got drafted. And you know, just kind of re revisiting that moment that we had at the Nike camp at, at Rutgers. And, you know, it's him, myself, um, Corey Redding, Clifton Smith, a bunch of guys I played with that was all Americans as well. But my issue was I didn't go to school. Um, I would go to school, check in, show my face and back out, smoke weed somewhere in the Chinese store, an abandoned building somewhere. And that's how I spent a lot of my time in high school. Um, I would go to school for some, some of the days and I'll leave home and try to sell some weed or whatever. I'll go to school to sell weed. I got to feed my daughter. This is what it's all about. Right. You know, and my mom's doing everything she can, but I want, you know, I want different stuff for her. You know what I'm saying? I want to do different. I want to do it different. I want to be the glamour, get the George for my daughter and all this stuff, you know, be like the Joneses, you know, how we just say back in the day. Right. But, um, you know, I did those type of things and it almost altered my career as an athlete. Um, and so, at that point, after I had that talk and I realized I got to make a transition, I had to be defeated. Now, football became serious for me. It became, not that I loved it, it became a job. And so I had to kind of, like, I wasn't a weightlifter in high school, but I had to do a little bit of working out, pull-ups, push-ups, that type of deal. Make sure I train my body over the summer, not at a speed camp, but just running, playing basketball, doing certain stuff to make sure I'm up shape and ready to go when football should come here. Stay active. Stay active, basically. Right. You know, and so it worked out for me, All-American, but I didn't have the grades. And so... Every school in America recruited me after a sophomore year. And, you know, Florida State, 
Alabama's, um, Ohio State's, you know. I remember all these guys and, and all these schools and talking to all these coaches, and Miami was, like, my top school. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to go to Miami or Tennessee was the top school schools I liked. When it came to Elizabeth High School and got my transcripts, I never even seen a coach at that point. I never even spoke to a coach at that point. Once they came to my high school and got my transcript, all communication ceased at that point. But there was a there was a there was a great gentleman named Terry Shea. Who's Terry Shea? Terry Shea was the head coach of Rutgers University. Okay. Me and Terry Shea developed a really really great relationship. And so as I seen my downhill slope starting to go the way it's going. I remember having a conversation with Terry, and he said, "Raheem, listen, I know we know about your 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 academic issues, issues, and mm-hmm. you know your your lack of." He said, "But we're 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 still wanting to take a chance on you, and we know you have a daughter, and we're we're trying to help you to become a better person for your daughter, athletically, academically." I thought about that for a while, and I said, "Um, all these other coaches, they're just talking about football." Now, mind you, I mentioned a couple minutes ago, I don't really give a damn about football. Right. I just want to feed my daughter. Either I'm going to feed her football or I'm going to feed her through some way of using my brain. I don't know at this point what I could do with my brain. Right. But I know I could tear somebody's ass up on that football field. So I ended up calling Terry Shea and I said, listen, coach, I'm coming to Rutgers. And this is way before the signing date and all that. You know, about a month before the signing date, national signing date, and I called Rutgers. Um, Terry Shade, I remember him almost crashing his car. Like, oh, wait, oh, almost crashed the car. Hold on, wait. <laughs> what, did you, what did you say? And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm coming, Terry. I'm coming down. He said, oh, man, you, haven't, you didn't take a visit at all. I had every other school in America visit set up, and I didn't get one of the Rutgers. So now I got to get down there, me and my mom, and take a visit. I said, well, me and my, me and my baby going to come. I called my mom a baby. I said, me and my baby coming down there, and um, we want to visit the campus and see what's going on. Okay, cool. We set it up. My mom went down there and said, right, this is where I want you to go. Now, my mom was my, my best friend, my biggest influencer. And once she said, I want you here, it was a wrap. It was a wrap. That's where I'm going, you know. And I went to Rutgers and back to my academic rules, I had to sit out Prop 48. So I went to Rutgers as a Prop 48. And what's a Prop 48 mean? You just go there, you focus on your academics. And you can't, you, you have no relationship with the football team. You're just a student, basically, but your your way of being admitted into the university is through football. But you're you have to focus on your academics and get your GPA up and receive your 21 credits or 24 credits, I believe it was, for your first year, and then you become eligible, right? It's almost like red shirt, but it, you can't even practice. But you can't even practice, right? Exactly what it's what sort of is, right? So I got 21 credits my first year. I needed 24. Mm-hmm. So guess what? I had to sit up a second year. By me getting 21 credits, now I'm able to come on to become a practice squad player. Rutgers can't play no games, but I'm, I can practice, do everything the team do. I just can't play in the game. So that gave me, now that that started to build my hunger. Now I'm like, I see this. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I see my teammates. I'm like, I'm going to come in here. I'm going to take over this damn team. These jokers can't play with me. A lot of them could, like some of them could, but mincing where I'm at, I know what I can do. And I'm like, not to knock my teammates, but I'm on a different level right now. I'm playing for a whole other purpose. Mm-hmm. So I do my thing. I get eligible. Second play of my first game playing football, I get injured. High angle sprint, 22 centimeters high. 
Second play of my first game against the University of Buffalo. Tear my ankle up. Um, sat out a couple weeks. I come back. What you playing there? At this point, um, I was switched from middle linebacker um, because I shot up a few inches and I gained a lot of weight. So I, I, I was moved from middle linebacker to defensive end. Now, let me explain something to you about me being moved from middle linebacker. So I love middle linebacker. That was that what made me who I was in Elizabeth High School. And one of the things I always despised Greg Shiano for is that when he moved me to defensive end, whatever little bit of love I had for the football game was gone. It's strictly business now. He made you a monster. Or he made me hate the game of football even more. Mm. I think he made me hate the game of football even more. And the reason why I say that because when I got to when it became time for me to become a professional, post Rutgers, let me rewind back before I get into that. So let's finish off Rutgers. Soft me, I get hurt, right? So I get hurt. I, I sit out for a few weeks. I come back. I play in two games. And that third game I go to play in, which is against University of Pittsburgh, I'm in a warm-up line. I get an injury, with an injury which, which was considered like a grade three pinch nerve, but it paralyzed me right side. So I couldn't even lift my arm. I couldn't kick out my leg. I couldn't do any of these things. So my season's over for sophomore year now. Now the question is, holy crap, we put all this into this boy, Raheem Moore. We accept him into the school, and all he did was get hurt. Terry Shea's gone, but Xiong kept me around. I won't say kept me around. I was the best thing. Me and LJ Smith was some of the best things we had around. So I didn't see me or him going anywhere. I knew we, he had to build around us. That's one thing I knew. Right. But now I hear the, you know, people start talking. I hear, I hear now I hear the doubters. I hear the doubters, which is the coach. Right. He's the doubter. Oh, man, we wasted, we wasted a scholarship on you. You ain't never going to play again, all this. And I hear it. I remember one day sitting outside of, I had to go meet with the doctor. And I remember hearing some coaches in the office and he was like, we should just figure out a way to get rid of them. I heard them say that. And that motivated the shit out of me. Excuse my French. But it motivated me because now I got to get, I got to get some, I got to find some type of way to get this feeling, something in my arm. I'm not paralyzed. I just know it's a, it's a pinched earth. So they say it's going to release at some point when we don't know because it's severely damaged. Let me severely pinched, whatever. So one day I wake up, man, and it's a funny story because I went out the night before and I had a few beers and I had to use the bathroom. So I had to get up and use the restroom. I'm living in the dorms. I got up, pushed myself about and walked to the bathroom. Like nothing happened. I'm using the bathroom and I realized I got all usage of my body. Mm. It's weak and I know whatever, but it feels weird. And I feel like still a little bit like something wrong, but I'm like, what in the heck? I get dressed, go to St. Go to St. Peter's Hospital. I see the doctor and I'm like, yo, I'm moving. I need to get now. What do I have to do now to get back on the football field? Mm-hmm. So I had to strengthen all my muscle, all that stuff. I get back on the field. I have two great years um, at Rutgers, my, my junior year, my senior year, um, all conference both years. Um, honorable mention All American as a senior. Um, and who's on this team with you? Who's because these are some of your they, these were some of the better Rutgers years up there, like record wise. I would say this is the building stage. This was this was the initial stage of the building stage. So some of the guys that were with me that was that's notable was uh, Nate Jones, 
Brandon Hall, uh, L.J. Smith, L.J. Smith, Gary Brackett. Um, he played for the Colts. Indianapolis Colts. Yes, Colts, and, he, yeah. and he actually a franchise owner. He, he owns a he owns a company that franchises out called the um, the Piccadill or one of the two companies. But he has a really nice company out there in Indianapolis, and he's franchised a bunch of restaurants. And it, it, it's really nice. I've been kind of paying attention to him, and, and I apologize for not getting the name right. But um, Gary is one one of the guys that that actually talk to me and inform me of my a-holeness <laughs> but also come back and say bro we need you you better than this and talk to me and um i admired that guy because something that i went through later on in life which is losing my parents and a, and a sibling he, he went through that and i see him handle that with grace i can't say i did but it inspired me to for the bounce back right you know, but um, how did you, mm-hmm. you know before you get you know out of the records years? Yes. How did you stay eligible? How, like, since you didn't okay. really care about academics, right? What changed? So let me tell you. So once I got the records, I found the love for academics. This let me. That's just let me uh, mention that. Um, I did all my work. I didn't cheat. People probably say you cheated. No, I didn't cheat because you know what? I cheated my life. I cheated my whole life. Right. I want to do things honest at this point from here on out. So I went to school, I did everything honest. Yes, I used tutors. Yes, I went to the resource centers. Yeah, I asked a hell of a lot of damn questions because I'm relearning, I'm, I'm re, you know, getting academics back into the forefront in my brain. And, you know, I took advantage of the resources that they had. Um, one thing I can say about Rutgers football and one of one, two of the people that I know that was very detrimental to me and my growth was Kathleen Shank and Bill Belly. Kathleen, who was, um, my academic advisor, listen, tough, would not let me settle for being ineligible no more mm. and made sure I was in the classes I needed to be in, you know, kept me on, you know, graduation track. Bill Belly was just a guy who was young. He was in our, sort of my age bracket, who was a big time baller at Rutgers and could relate. And he just related to us, right. you know, and gave us insight when we needed it, checked us when we needed it and kept it a hundred when we needed it. So Bill was there, and then it was all those guys were there. But also the most important person to me in my Rutgers career was Randy Melvin, who was my defensive line coach. That was my dad. And I don't know if he ever knew that, but he was my dad. And one of the most important things I think that he ever taught me and what made me, what makes me what I feel is a great coach today is that you're not coaching, you're teaching. You're teaching them something. And you gotta have the patience in the world, but teach them and keep teaching them and keep teaching them and just keep teaching them. And honestly, if you ever came out and watched me in a segment of work with my D lineman or working as a defensive coordinator or when I had experience as a head coach, if you ever seen me in these places, I was mimicking everything Randy Melvin did. And I try to do a lot of things that Shiano did, I tried not to do. And not to knock him because that was his way of getting the program where he had to go. It just didn't follow my favorite that I, sometimes I was on the other. And now, listen, I wasn't no saint, so I'm not sitting here trying to make Shiano no bad guy because Shiano was my guy, too, you know. But sometimes I think he was a little bit hard on me. Yeah. And, you know, we know they say truth hurts. So when so when I'm in my truth, it, it hurt me at the time because I'm like, damn, I'm wrong. He got me again. But reflecting back, 
I gotta be thankful for those moments that me and him shared of my negative moments because he, again, he was another person who would talk me through them. And I don't have nothing bad to say other than he was just rough for me. Yeah. But look who I am today. So obviously him being rough was a part of me and my growth. Um, so I don't want, I hope it didn't come off that I'm bashing Greg Shannon because that's not, you know, I actually got love for coach. I don't have nothing against him. And I think he's a great guy. And he's a definitely a goddamn great coach. Excuse my French. I don't like to curse when I'm in these interviews, but sometimes I have to express things the way they need to be expressed. And, and that's the only way you can express him as a defensive-minded coach. Um, defense wins championships. Absolutely. <laughs> but Randy Nelson was a guy that was important in my life, and, 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 I'll, and I'll always be indebted to him for the skills that he taught me. Not about coaching football, about being a man and being like, and, and the most important, being black and doing that. Right. And how to hold yourself and carry yourself in a, in a crowd of important people. He taught me that. I feel like, um, did he coach at Temple? He could have. I don't know what his path took him after Rutgers. Now, Randy was, let me tell you Randy's career. Randy won the Super Bowl in 2001 with the New England Patriots. The next day, that Monday, he was at, Ruck, at work at Rutgers teaching me, talking to me, learning me, trying to answer stuff to me. The day after the Super Bowl. That's crazy. You know what I'm saying? And so, he was a very highly sought out guy for his talent and his skills. So he could I have think, been at Temple because I know I think D'Anafio and then went to Temple. And I know a lot of those guys journeyed and stuck together because they had they, they became a brotherhood as well. But I know I'm quite sure he, I know he was down in Miami. I know I seen him when I was in New York, the Giants. He was was at he the Browns. Was he affiliated with Al Gore? Could have been. But I know I know Mark D'Anafio um, was an Al Gordon guy. Yeah. So a Shiano guy, but out, you know, but but Nafra did get in was a DC. I want I think at one point four Temple when he left Rock became a DC. Yes. So it could have been. It could be. I'm not sure. I don't know. But Kadeem Lever coach Melvin somewhere. He told, yeah. him, told him skate rush and all this stuff. So we're talking about the same guy then. Yeah. There's only one. I, I'm not gonna say only one, but if you're talking about Melvin, we say defensive line, which Dean and I were, yeah. It's Randy Melvin. There's no other Melvin out there coaching like that, unless his son his son who should probably have the knowledge in the world of football is our culture <laughs> too, but if there's only one Melvin, and that's there's I I I would put I'll put everything I own that we're talking about the same person. Yeah. Yeah. No, but just uh, you know, wrapping up your career, you know, at Rutgers, you say you went out with a bang, honorable mention all American, all conference. Um what about your path, you know, trying to make it to the NFL? What was that journey like? So it was a weird one. It was a funny one. And this is where this is where the interview get exclusive at. I'm gonna I'm gonna disclose something that a lot of people didn't know. So I didn't take the I didn't take the process serious. You know they say don't be afraid to be great. I was scared to be great. Why though? Like any reason for I couldn't tell you why. All I knew is I wanted the money to get there and I wanted the fame that came behind it. But I wasn't willing to work there. And I was nervous about how it would what, what would be the results of me getting there. If you can, you know what I'm saying? So again, I didn't Is train. that in like a positive or a negative way? That's it wasn't an, it wasn't positive. I would say it was negative because like I would wake up in the morning some days and be like, man, I want the rubber. Ain't nobody drafting me. I ain't making some jam in the NFL. I doubted myself. You know what I'm saying? Right. And at this point, you know, it's it's a lot of mental, it's just like some of the, one of the most 
mentally challenging moments of my life. I didn't handle it in the best way. So I started, I would smoke weed to calm me down. Okay. I remember the feeling of smoke weed, calm me, relax me, and I would smoke weed. And I and I remember going to Chicago after the, the combine draft and the pro days, everything over. I remember going to Chicago and I took a drug test and I failed it. Charles projected the first round, second round draft pick coming out of Rutgers because I was one of the top five guys coming out as a, at that position in college football. Not even knowing my own stats because I don't read newspapers and pay attention to stats. So, but that was my situation. And I felt the drug test and I went from a first, second projected draft pick to probably ain't going to get drafted. When I got the letter in the mail, I didn't tell my agent so that he could do some damage control, trying to get it figured out, whatever. I hid it from everybody. One thing Shiana should say was it catch up to you and it catch up to you. It caught up to me when it caught up to me on day one and day two of the draft. First round come out, my agent said, hey, I don't know what happened. I don't even know. You're not even being up on the draft boards. Like, what's going on? I said, I don't know. But I know. You was playing stupid with him. Second round come. Listen, I'm sure this is your round, man. I'm sure this is you. You're about to go. Second round go through. Boom, nothing happened. Third round come. Boom, nothing happened. Fourth round come. Boom, nothing happened. Major call me like, there's something going on around here that I'm going to get to the bottom of because this isn't right. Now, my agent, Alan Herman at the time, was a very well-known agent. Um, you know, and the company Sports Stars is very, very well-known. He represented a lot of guys. And, you know, it just, it just, he found out. And what happened was, you know, I go to church. It's a Saturday. You know, the draft's last Saturday. Whatever, and then Sunday come, I go to church with my mom. I'm sitting in church in the back of the church. My phone ring. I'm looking like, oh, it's a four-pound, four-pound now. So finally, you know, all the rounds come, we leave church, we go home, we're trying to have like a little draft party, whatever. And then finally they call me and tell me I got drafted like 205th pick overall. Which is what round? Seventh round. Seventh round? Seventh round. So you fell from first, first second, second round? to seventh round. From a, drug, from a drug test. From a drug test. And the only reason probably why I got drafted because Ali Herman and Ernie, or, or, oh, I can't remember the, it wasn't Ernie, of course, that was a guy from the Giants. But I can't remember the general manager from Houston. He and Alan Herman, who was my agent, had a really good relationship. Houston wanted me. Um, not saying they would have took me over Jason Babin, but Houston wanted me that bad where me and Jason Babin was their two, their two top guys if they didn't get Will Smith, which went to New Orleans. So then it's now me and Jason Babin. And they took Jason Babin, of course, because I felt the drug test. Mm. So Alan got them to even to give me a shot. And they still drafted me because they still wanted me. So they said we could probably have another DN on the, on the board. So Houston drafted me. Seventh round, 205th pick. How long has the Houston been a franchise at this point? They're a new franchise? Yes. So I think this is either their second year or their third year. Either one or the two. Not sure at the time, but it's 2004. How do you feel about that? Like coming going to a brand new franchise, basically? Honestly, I ain't give a crap where I went. For I real? just want to go out there and play football and get paid. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, it's a little girl named Amber Orr. Who carries almost my whole DNA that needs to eat. Right. It needs to be into a good school. It needs clothes in her back. It needs to be in a green environment where she can grow and continue to be a kid and be and we can continue to nurture and hone in on her skills and help her develop. You know, um, she's these things are, are required. So I didn't really, you know, care where where I was at. I just wanted to be on an NFL football team, playing some football, making money and playing and, and doing something that I became accustomed to liking to do. Right. You know, 
So, so you get drafted by the Texans. What was it like when you got there? Oh, it's pure hell. I'll be honest. None of the none of none of the veterans wanted to help me. Um, I had a family member who was somewhere down the line. Um, we're related. Well, we we had a relation comes in, but his name was Shante Orr. We went play linebacker at Michigan State. So Shante used to call me over and we'd sit, we'd talk, and he was the only one that would help me because we shared the last name Orr. And he was very, he was very helpful, and he really dedicated his time to me, helping me. Um, and that's in regards to like being a professional, or being, like being, place. Be, well, being a football player, learning the playbook, and learning how to conduct myself as far as football. Okay. My problem was you didn't give me some money. Houston is a very, very big town, party town. So rather than me leaving the facility and going home and focusing in and trying to really hone in on my craft. I'm finding the bar to get to to go say, oh, Mr. NFL, inside the bar, you chilling. Mm-hmm. And that was my time in Rutgers. Um, they catch up to you when they catch up to you. One day I'm walking in from practice and one of the guys said, hey, coach, uh, hey, Raheem, coach, want to see you upstairs. Bring your playbook. I went to my cousin and said, yeah. He said, they said, uh, DC want to see me upstairs, bring my playbook. He looked at me like, what? Mm. He knew what it was. So long story short, I go upstairs, I see Don Capers, and Don Capers tell me, you know, um, we hope we wish things would work out different, but we gotta release you. We gotta make room for some players to get in here that we wanna look at and get a better look at. It. And you're not progressing you know, or you're not handling your business basically the way you should be handling it. And this is your first year. It's my first year. So he, so, so they cut you. They cut me. And and what did that feel like? Oh, that was the worst feeling in the world. I never been fired from nothing before. That was my first time being fired. And, um, man, it sucked. You know what I'm saying? It did, sucked. Did it identify with you in a, in a place of, like, you didn't feel good enough or this wasn't a good fit? Honestly, 15 years ago, well, 15 years removed from the situation, I can't really remember what my emotions was at the time. Mm-hmm. I know I was mad. I know I hated the Texans as an organization. <laughs> And um, I was confused as what's my next move. Okay. All I can think about how I'm gonna feed this girl now. My dream over. Go home for a couple of days and I get to call New York Giants. Right, be coming to New York. Come to New York. So I get to New York and get out there and have a wonderful time for first few years. I'm there, 0405. And um, you know, I'm having a good time playing for Rutgers, and then the party thing just jumped right back into me. So I get I get released uh, the at the training camp 06. After I get released from them, I'm really confused now because now I'm really just like I'm sick of the I'm sick of getting fired. The love for the game is not there, so the motivation is not there to want to go and work out and really make myself better. It's all about the next buck. I don't care about no damn football. I don't care if I'm on practice squad. I just want to get paid the money I was getting paid. You know, right. and I can make good money on practice squad. So it didn't work out for me. You know, I ended up going to a Houston in da- a workout in Dallas, and I went to a workout in San Francisco. Um, both teams was like, you know, we see you out of shape. I wasn't. You know, I wasn't in shape. So whatever, it didn't work out. <clears throat> so now I come home, and I remember like this November 18, 2006, Philadelphia Soul called me. I'm phone call from a guy named Brett Muncy with a guy named Bon Jovi on the phone and we're sitting there, we're talking. 
and they're like, hey, man, you know, like what you're doing out there. Remember coming up, seeing you up at the, at the camp and seeing you doing good. And, you know, we've seen your film. You look good. We want, we think you can make it out here in arena football. Would you be interested in coming play in arena? How much y'all pay, man? Is that what you said to him? That's it. How much y'all pay? Hey, what did he say to you? He told me how much they paid. I said, I'll be down there tomorrow. That worked for me. I'll be down there tomorrow. So this is next. This is the closest thing I got to making six figures again. Well, me getting six figures, you know what I'm saying? And um, I won in. So I went down there. Arena football is different. It's like learning football all over again. It's like learning a whole new game of football. But I went out there. I learned it. First year was so good, but my last two years were really well. Um, I spent some, I spent my majority, 98% of my time was in Houston, like a week and some change in Michigan, playing for the Grand Rapids uh, team. And Philadelphia brought me back. And I ended up finishing my career in 2008, winning the championship, the first championship for the Philadelphia Soul. Mm. And I retired that December. Um, just didn't have, didn't, didn't never had a love for the game, but just don't want to be doing no more training camps. Come Because January starts training camp again for the, for the arena at the time. I didn't want to go through a training camp. I don't want to lift a weight. I haven't been working out. I don't care to play no football. I think I have enough money and me and my wife at the time. Um, I don't mean the time, but me and my ex-wife, we could uh, we could make it work. We'll be all right. Um, she's working now. I've got a really good job. And I'm like, you know what? I could, I could find a good job out here. I mean, you know who I am. Um, my name, somebody with my networks to help me help me figure it out. And um, you retired. I retired. And that landed me, and that put me onto my path of humanitarian work. Okay. Um the biggest question I had for myself was, what can I do to make my time worthwhile post football? What can I do to make me feel good? It really wasn't much that I, that I, that I inspired to do. Honestly, I just want to be a father to my children. I have a son now as well, uh, Raheem Jr. And I just want to make my kids proud of me. Um, how I do it, I don't know, but I want to do that. And so I, I, one thing I did, start, one thing, that happened was I started to reflect on my, my life as a youth. Things I had that I would love to elaborate on and things I didn't have that I would love to introduce or become or try to figure out why I didn't have these things and try to make it easier for somebody else possibly. And as a youth, one thing I always wanted was a dad, a, a man to just take to me. Right. You know what I'm saying? And really just be that person. You know what I'm saying? Now, I grew up, I have a stepfather at the time. My mom, you know, remarried, I had my stepfather. And not to knock my stepfather, but my stepfather got my little brothers, my two little brothers, Tyrell and Daniel, and then had my sister, my youngest sister. So I get it as a dad, because I'm a dad at this point. Your focus is your your kids. Right. So I, I, I won't say I wasn't as focused, but I was a little bit older at this point now. You know, at the time, I'm yearning for these things. So I didn't have that. You know, priorities a little different for him, right? But different. Yeah. I wasn't. I wasn't. I wouldn't say I wasn't. His, I wasn't his main priority. Let's just let's just be hundred with it. Like, I, it, I couldn't have been because you already got these are your main priorities. And me as a father understood it and definitely understood it back then. So I didn't really go out of my way to really pull my my stepfather's attention. But when I needed him, he was there. That's one thing I honestly can say. Right. So I love him for that. You know, and but um. You know, what can I do? And like I said, the most important thing I wanted was my dad in my life. So I said, well, how can I be, how can I be that person to somebody else's child? There's a lot of kids out here that look like me and you, right? 
unfortunately, they don't have their fathers around for whatever reason, whatever decision he may have made to put him in a bad position, or he may have just not, it's just been God time to call him, or dad never knew that this, that dad never wanted to be a part of his child life and, and did the dash on it, on the mom. Right. Some way, somehow, scenario, this kid is left fatherless. How can I be an impact to that kid? And that was my goal. Um, initially, I did not get into working with children. I got into my humanitarian um, background with building homes for single single mothers. Um, single that, that was your first thing? That was my first thing I did. I went through Philadelphia. After I retired from Seoul, I stayed in Philadelphia. This is now my home now at this point. And I started building homes, helping to build homes for um, single parent mothers and less fortunate families. And I did about nine houses, helped build about nine houses. And I think at this point, I now am working as a case manager for Elwin with intellectually disabled consumers. Mm-hmm. And that became a little bit too emotional for me because I think I, I think my, my my care for loving was too much. You know, these people are dealing with intellectually problems like and, and disabled intellectually. So they're not they're they they do not deal, they don't have the same common sense and function like we do. They don't process the same. They don't at all. process at all the same. And right. I would see people do abusive things, what I felt was abusive. Now you could have just said move, and that's abusive to me. You shouldn't talk to him like that. Excuse right. me is the correct way to go about it, and I'll correct you on that. And it just became a point where I felt myself being too much involved, and I couldn't separate the two. And before I put myself in a position where I act the wrong way, I had to remove myself from the situation. Which then I took the job at Glen Mills in 2010. Okay. You know what I'm saying? Um, at Glen Mills, I identified with them young men day one. I had an issue day one. I remember a staff coming to me like, tuck your effing shirt. And I looked at this dude like, man, I'll hurt you. <laughs> you don't know me, dude, but I'll hurt you. And, and, and I'm just looking at you. I know you ain't going to stand it, but I'll hurt you. <laughs> and I remember uh, one of the coolest dudes that, uh, that's, that's been my dude and still my dude. I don't talk to him much, but her, her beat me. Mm-hmm. That was my supervisor. That was my guy who trained me and her. He said, oh, coach, you know, it's just one of the norms around here. You know, blah blah blah. He being he by say, coach, you're right, but man, like, what's up? Like, we yeah. staff. That's what he's like. Yeah, you know, we got a model behavior. Hmm, I never heard model behavior there. I never heard the term. So he introduced the term terminology, model behavior. Okay, cool. I got that like that. So tuck our shirt. In. Okay, cool. I'm all about it. Tuck your shirt in. You accept confrontation. It's cool. I'm 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 older now, so now I can't accept confrontation. Depending how you confront it. The cursing made me look. I, my 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 mom cursed at me, right? And I didn't like it. As I got older, I said, "Mom, I don't like you cursing at me." So she stopped. Mm-hmm. That mean the world got to stop cursing at me now, right? <laughs> you feel me? I feel you. Because even to this day, you curse. Like if I'm like we could, we could be in a heated conversation, going back and forth, having a really heated dialogue, right? I'm not going to curse. I'm going to talk to you like this. But please don't curse at me. Please don't. Please don't invade my personal space and please don't present yourself in a manner where you want to physically do, do something to me because then now it's like, now I got to think, I got to make home with my baby. So now you put, now you put my back to the wall and I got to fight out and I don't want to never have to do that. Right. You know, so my, my, you know, and I always give the respect. I'm never going to take it nowhere. I'll always allow a person to take it with to the ignorant level they will want to go because I can cater to the level, but I don't, I don't want to. And so 
I can always control myself. And usually when I control myself and I stay at a low tone and I stay at 40, 50 as far as the speed of the conversation and <laughs> everything else, it usually stays around there. It don't, it don't have to go nowhere for further. So it don't have to escalate. Right. You know, so Herb introduced me that and you know, so I had no problem with that. And I sat under his wing for for a few years. Um and learned a lot. Just wanted to pick his brain. Um, I had Bill Walsh and Craig Millager. Um, I don't know if it's okay to say these guys' names on the podcast. That's fine. Okay, but I had those guys as trainers as well. So I came up under three guys. I still, you know, if, if I was at Glenn Mills today, that I admired. And if you ever see me interact with these guys, I'm, I'm like overjoyed. I'm happy because these are three guys that helped me to understand what my role is today. And how I can be better at certain things. Right. Not saying they were perfect, but they helped me become better at a lot of things. And I took a lot of those things that they taught me, I took and now I utilize them today. Um, but going to Glen Mills, man, you know, I try to come from a model where I'm a stickler for respect, like respect it. Um, you know, and and I wanted to teach those guys. And, you know, I didn't wanna I didn't want want to be identified as, you know, what they call guys that come up there and like a hammer or whatever. I wanted to be identified as a guy that listen, man. Um, I'm gonna always speak to you and come to respect. I'm always, even if I'm correcting you and confronting you, right? And my tone of voice might be a little loud than what you're normally used to listen to, but there's a message in my tone. Don't listen to the tone of my voice. I will always tell the kids, listen to the message that's coming through my voice. Right. And once I learned to convey that and get guys to understand that, listen, I'm confronting you and I'm mad. And I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at the action that you just presented. Because if you were on the street, this action could have probably got you killed or put you past the mills into prison. Right. So I made everything, I magnified everything. Amplified it. Right. And I made sure that they understood that there's a reward for anything you do in life. Good or bad, there's a reward for it. You do good, it's a reward. You do bad, there's a reward. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I made that clear and I always made myself transparent. You know, I talk about my days in the street. I talk about my past history with, with the, the the judicial system. Um, I talk about my ups and downs, um, me not making good decisions athletically, business-wise. All these things I talk about to these kids. You know why? Because maybe not all of them, but maybe one of them might experience that path that I took. So if I can expose and condition him to these situations, mm-hmm. he'll handle them a lot better later on in life when they present themselves to him. So guys like you, me, some of the other guys that you know had worked there, I think relating to the kids, the troubled youth or whatever they want to call them, mm-hmm. um, came natural, being inner city guys, right? right? Correct. Just in your experience, what were any of the challenges you faced, you know, working with the with the troubled youth? Okay, so a lot of kids don't think when I was a kid, I'd knock your head off. They ain't think that. And they think because I'm older, I don't have that in me still. I just I just choose to to really like keep that buried in, you know, buried so they don't, I don't want that, you know what I'm saying, that action to come out. So I keep it buried. But the way I present myself, sometimes I present myself, and, and the fact that I won't present myself as, as, as a 6'5, 285 pound monster. I think the kid took advantage of it. Not took advantage, didn't didn't take it, took it for granted. Let's say took it for granted at times. Right. And it didn't make me feel no kind of way, you know. But I will always tell them, you know, at, at real recognize real. 
so all I, my job wasn't to make them feel like, oh, I'm this big bad guy and go out there restrain the kid. No, there's going to be situations that's going to happen around this unit that you're going to start to receive that me revealing my character and how I deal with things. And you know, kids, the word back then was, hey, that ain't thorough, right? Yeah. Okay, so I know you just did something that violated all these norms, right? So is it thorough for me to reprimand you or is it thorough to sit here and talk to you, right? And walk you through every step of that process, right? And have you thinking about this for some time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And don't even and don't even reprimand you for the thing. Is that thorough or am I enabling you? You know what I'm saying? Right. And I would I would present that to them. And they would say, nah, it's thorough because you could do something totally different, but you don't do it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So these kids talk. You know, one thing, you know, social media isn't called social media for a reason. It's social media because the world knows these kids talk. They can't hold water. Right. Back in our day, it was shh. See, they want to take the don't don't snitching thing from our era and make it part of theirs, but in all actuality, a lot of them ain't been through nothing, so they all tell them. Right. You know what I'm saying? They don't know what it means to be shh. For real. Because a lot of them came to keep a secret. Remember back in the day, you better not tell a secret. You better not, you better, you tell, I'll tell you a secret, you better not tell. See, we held on to secrets. I got secrets that some of my buddies and things I've seen that I still ain't, ain't disclosed. You know what I'm saying? Right. But they can't keep secrets, and that's fine. <clears throat> because um, what they say, omitting the truth is still lying or whatever, maybe, and all, that, all, those, yeah, yeah. all those type of things. So now that they're actually talking, okay, cool, it is what it is. You know what I'm saying? Me personally today, I understand talking about my problem, talking about things I did, it makes me feel better. I'm releasing that thing into the into the atmosphere and letting that energy go. You know, so I don't mind it. And and when I became a person to start getting these kids to talk and to process what they're doing wrong and be able to accept a solution or come up with a solution. And present it to the person that they need to, but not only that, but then also counsel other young men about, yeah. you know, what I'm saying about them doing something wrong, and and that same counselor that's counseling that's through now made the same decision. They could talk about their prior situation and how I helped them. Now they're going to help that person. Each one teach one, and you start to build like that. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because um, I live in Philadelphia, and man, I run into a lot of my boys. I don't call them students. Um, those are my boys. Mm-hmm. And if I ever had any interaction with you, you became my boy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And some of them are men. So these are my young men. Some of them are still, you know, these I can't even say boys. These are these are my young men. I, got, I run into a lot of my young men, right, that have grown. Some have grown. All haven't. I can't speak for all. But a lot of them that I run into, they're doing very well. And I always wait for the statement saying, yeah, he, I remember you, man, talking to me and doing all this and doing that and helping me do, man. You was one, you was one of the thorough counselors out there that helped me, man. Like you really helped us up there. You cared about us. It's funny. I can't cry in front of them, but I go and find my own space. And honestly, I, I, I shed tears because I say, why do they feel like that? You know what I'm saying? Like, what did I do to really help them? And a lot of it, like, see, they they sit there. Me, I don't I don't want no no um I don't want no like I don't want a reward for what I do. Right. I don't do what I do for money. 
And I think you get to a place like that when you find your purpose. Yes. When you find your pur- when you find your purpose, you don't need nothing else. It, it's already rewarding in itself. Yeah. You know, just doing it. And me, you know, me me being Muslim, um, I realize nothing that on this earth matters unless it's doing the right thing or glorifying God. Right. And that's it. I feel like me working with the youth, me helping the youth, me taking my time out, coaching these young men, me in their hood looking for them because they missed my mentoring session, they missed my workout session. I'm in your neighborhood looking for you and I'm ready to go through everybody to get to you. <laughs> That's my love. Right. I know that blessing is gonna that blessing is gonna be reflected upon me because I, I have a past where I did a lot of bad things. So I'm just trying to make right on some of the bad things I did with some good blessings. And once I if ever can bridge that gap of my bad ways and my bad Things I did in the past, if I could bridge that gap with all these blessings and doing the right thing and stack more on top of that, I'm looking good when it comes to it all said and done and, and, and the law calls me home. Um, I'm looking good to be where I want to be. So I do everything for blessings. Um, don't get me wrong. I have to make money because I have three children um, that I have to provide for. Me, I'm good. If, you, if I got one pair of drawers, these shorts, those shoes, these socks, I'll wear it every day in the year as long as my kids is okay. I don't bother me. I don't do nothing for, for anyone no more. I, I, I'm not here to impress nobody. Right. You know what I'm saying? So I could care less what you feel about me. Right. Um, I don't, again, I don't live for nobody, but I have to make money. I have to do these things. So my way of making money and doing things to kind of really compensate for my time is um, I have a nonprofit organization called More Than a Sport. And through more than a sport, um, it's a community-based nonprofit organization. Um, we focus on mentoring young men, um, things of like health and wellness, conflict resolution, resiliency, um, goal setting, life skills, leadership skills. Um, you know, now I don't know if I mentioned financial literacy, which I think I did, but we do all these things in the environment, which I have a, a whole curriculum for this. Right. You know what I'm saying? Which I do, like workshops or? Um, well, it's a, uh, so, so the school year, we do all, we, we, we harp on each, each component has, can be broken down to how many of the weeks you want to kind of stretch out the, the eight, nine components that we have that go into the curriculum. But we do workshops um, and I'll be running a workshop and I bring other people in for the workshops. We also have a program back up in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Um, at, at, a, at a facility at Second Presbyterian Church, um, 1161 East Jersey Street, Elizabeth, New Jersey, 07201. We have our program that operate out of our facility where we run this program during the school year. And what we do is we kind of lobby to the councilmen and the schools and saying to the parents, we do a very good job of engaging the parents and informing them of what we offer and what we're doing to try to help your kids to, so that your kid can have a village. And not only do we offer the, you know, the mentoring program, um, this coming August, we're going to be taking, you know, a group of kids to Rutgers University. We're going to do a college tour through the College Ave campus. And then we're going to um, finish our day off over at the football practice, the training camp practice. And then we'll get a a tour of the actual football facility and meet the coaches and some of the players. And, you know, some some of the coaches and players may come, it's going to come and talk and share some things. with the players, with the with the kids that we bring up there, but it doesn't. It's not about an athlete. We're not just bringing athletes. We're bringing kids who want, who inspired to 
go, go to college because everyone doesn't want to go to college. Some kids want to go to trade school. They go with their hands. Okay, we're going to be doing that too for you. You know, we're going to be exposing you to these things too. And, you know, the big thing I'm lobbying for right now is I don't have my own facility. Um, I'm basically renting um, a very hefty price. But Renting where you hold your camps and stuff like that? Well, everything we do is we got to pay a fee for because um, we we don't have it where um, we're able to get it, I guess you could say pro bono to us in right. a sense. You know what I'm saying? We don't have it yet. And maybe we haven't made that right connection, which soon soon we will. But currently we don't have that. So, you know, um, it, it, it's rough. In a sense, but it's it's we get our we get we get we get the things that we need to get done done. Right. But um, you know, we're trying to really get a facility where we can offer a gentleman like I have a best friend and a guy called my brother who has his own electrical company. Well, why can't I come in him come have him come in and talk about? He taught me it, so I could talk to you all about electrician. I see you got you know things, and I can look at your house and. And point them all out and they go, I, I know about that. Right. And you know, coming in and talk to them about a three-way switch, how how to bring service and electricity to a home and all that type of stuff. My brother has a, a credit repair company. Um, bringing him in there, talking to him, you know, having him come in and talk to the to the kids and to the parents, not only kids, but to parents as well, about financial literacy and importance of your credit, things of that nature. And so forth and so many other workshops. I have a lady that's down in Philadelphia who has an organization called Money Talks. And me and her are going to start partnering and talk about financial literacy and things in nature as well. And she wants to get involved with some of the things that we want to do. But we want a facility where we can have all these places where if we want to do a workshop for kids, we have it where we can have multiple rooms where we can go from, we can have them transition from room to room and have it our own facility that we can make ours and build up the way we wanted to do, where we can have areas for our, our athletic department, and we can have our area for our after-school program and our mentoring program, and then we can have our conference room, we can do our big board meetings and everything in there, stuff like that. And in a place where, you know, after hours when kids may be down, maybe we could bring some people that's less fortunate than us and start teaching them some, some, some personal skills. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, so we just, want to do all these things. Just break down, because mm-hmm. I remember, you know, back when we worked together, I remember, like, like some of the first, like, talks about, like, more than the sports, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just break down, like, some of the, like, what, what, what was the thinking and the concept behind it? Like, you know, it's more than the sport. It's more than just being an athlete. Got you. Got you. Okay, so the, the name more than the sport is this, right? So sports is what gave me the platform. Mm-hmm. The more then is my civic duty to the world. Right. So how I came up with the name, as I mentioned, um, you know, I was an athlete. But sports didn't make me who I am. So when at the at the post high school, right, is when I started to become into like my own who I am today. And I didn't have sports as a freshman, as a sophomore. So first and foremost, I had to become a, a student. Yep. All right. Well, excuse me. First and foremost, I got to still be able to maintain my responsibilities as a father. Right. Have to become a student again. Right. Now I have to learn how to maneuver 
and work and be a mild citizen on Rutgers campus. I can't be up there acting like Elizabeth, fighting and stuff like that. Which right. initially, you know, you know, I, I had issue, I had a few issues. Right. You know what I'm saying? You can't do this. It's not normal. So I had to realize I had to put the childish games away and start to step become a man. And then I had to learn how to train my body because um, I wasn't the biggest dude coming out of high school, but I was I was very fast and you know had a little bit of weight to me. But I had to, had to build my body up to be able to come to become competitive on the collegiate level. Right. You know, and then it just overall just you know just be a great just develop into a great person, have a purpose, develop a purpose for my life. Um, none of that crap involves sports. It's more than that. It was more than a sport. Right. Football was easy. All right, go out there and knock a joke ahead off. Cool. I could do that. I don't care who you are, what school you went to. Rutgers, Miami, I'm showing my ass. Don't care who's over me. You know what I'm saying? Right. So, you know, was, sports was easy. The hard part was all everything else that was behind the scenes that I had to become all Americans in as well. So I'm all American on the football field, but I'm a bench warmer at everything else in life. Mm. Everything. So I had it took me to get myself, it took everything outside of football and even more. I had to, I had to pour more of myself into these things, right? In order for me, in order for me to become great on the football field. So it took more than a sport for me to become Abdul Raheem Laquan or senior today. Wow. Beautiful man. It's beautiful man. So, yeah. um, so, so we talked about the nonprofit. Um, we gloss over your coaching career, man. Okay, so you know, let's get into it. You know, where, where did your coaching career start? Okay, so my coaching career started for a great organization in the Germantown section. Well, I won't think Germantown in the Mount Airy section of Philadelphia, and I was a coach for the Mount Airy Bantams. So, I won the arena championship in two thousand eight. I turn around, start coaching. I won a championship August 10th. I start coaching August 14th. <laughs> I remember the dates. Yeah. You know, some of the few things that I can remember from all the, the nine concussions that I had in my career. Wow. But um, uh, certain things I can remember, and that's a cherished moment, so I remember that. And it, August 14th, I started coaching for my man Earl. Uh, well, my buddy Russell, who was the electrician, or who was the cable guy in my building, and he was like, man, you know, this folks used to come in every time I had an issue my kid. Yo, Russ, come on up. And over the years, me living in Philly, and the, actually was presidential city, uh, Elizabeth uh, City Avenue, he was the guy who did all the cable and everything. Okay. And after a while, he started picking my brain on football. And now I wanted, like, well, why are you always that good football? Well, I coach. And, oh, where you coach at? First year, I'm like, nah, I'm going to second year. I'm like, yo, I want to coach. He's like, oh, let me come and coach with us. Okay, cool. So I go out there and coach. Um, I did the defensive line. And you can say I kind of assisted with the DC responsibilities, but we had uh, a gentleman who, by the name of Bob, who was like the big time, you know, uh, 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 Bear Bryant guy. Right. So he was the guy that was known because he introduced. And what age bracket is this? So I want to say eighth through one down. Okay. Um, we had all our all our kids. I was coaching like the sixth, seventh, and maybe one or two eighth graders. You know, that guy that was small but still eligible to play. And um, we went on that year to win a championship in a week. So Your first year? My first year, I won a championship. 
Wow. And it was it was it wasn't an easy championship. It was a hard fought one. Um, because the team we played in the championship was a team that it was the first team that the first my first game of the season, my first coaching game I lost. My okay. first game ever coaching I lost to Bucks County team. We come back and beat Bucks County 21-7 or 28-7 in the championship. You know what I'm saying? And a lot of it because our players were overweight. So we had to get some players down. And as the season go on, you get you get a little bit of extra weight allotted. And I sat in and coached two years from Mount Airy to Benham's. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't complete my second year. My second year, I was pulled mid-season around October to go. I was given the opportunity to go coach for Pepper Middle School, to be the head coach for the Pepper Middle School Southwest Jaguars. Okay. Um, my first year was a, was a tumbling year. Second year was a crazy year. We went undefeated, didn't give up a touchdown, and we put up probably like 700 points in the season with a bunch of middle school kids. Wow. Yeah. And I'm not lying. You can actually buy it about 2010 Southwest Jaguars. We were just, it was crazy. We changed the name of Philadelphia. I, I don't know how it's doing now, but I know we changed the, changed the game of Philadelphia middle school football after that year. Um, the, that following year, my third year, I lost a lot of my coaches um, to becoming head coaches at high school. We did that good of a year. Guys just giving high school jobs. I didn't want to take a high school job because um, I couldn't devote the time to that with my job. So I stuck at Pepper, and after my third year, I remember one day sitting in my sitting in my house, and my buddy called me from the soul, Keita Crispina, and and Keita said, "Uh, yo man, what you doing? Coaching?" I said, "Nah, I ain't coaching, coach." I said, "Yeah, I said I'm getting ready to go back to the soul." He's like, "You want to coach high school?" I mean, go back. I'm about to go back to the, to the Pepper, to the chart, to the the Jaguars. He said, "You want to coach high school?" I said, "Why?" He said, "My man looking for D line coach, man. You, I told him you the best." So I'm like, okay, cool, let's get it. I called up a guy named uh, who was my dog, my old head. I won't call him old head because he's you know, a few years older than me, but he's a guy I look up to as a, as a big brother. And um, his name is Albie Crosby. And he brought me on for MOTAP. And from day one, he was filling me out. He seen something in me. He was filling me out. And to this day, I don't talk to my brother, but it's all love. And that's, I know he's down at Newman Garatti, and I know he's about to. I know he's about to be the king over there again. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And I know Newman's about to be the best thing smoking on earth. But um, I had the pleasure of working with him, who's an offensive-minded guru. And so I want to kind of give him that because there ain't but two people I've seen in my coaching career that can move that ball in the thing. That was uh, Dell Ivory. Albie Crosby, two guys I admire as offensive-minded guys. And um, the best, some of the best, I think, that did it in this area. And from MOTEP, you know, we went to the state championship back-to-back. We went this way, went to the, semif- went to the quarterfinals and went to the, went to the semifinals and went to the finals and lost. And at that point, I took a year off. Um, I had got the job at Glen Mills. I was just promoted to a supervisor. So I couldn't... I couldn't commit my time to the coaches. To the coaches. So I had to kind of just get in where I fit in, in a sense. But you coached some boys at Emotep, man. I did. You coached, you coached, like, let's just, let's just be frank. Like, Emotep was, like, yeah. crazy yeah. in them years. Like, yeah. like all them Division One prospects. Like, you like you could probably name a few, you know. That's my best case. player, I'm going to tell you what. 
I got I got a lot of guys that I really love from that program. I love all those guys. Let's just make that clear. But DJ Dennison Moore, Carolina Panthers. I remember seeing. I remember when I was with the Bantams, and I went up to DJ. I said, "You want to play professional football one day, young man?" And I remember meeting his mom. Is cooking. I told her, "I said he gonna play pro ball." She said, "You think he cooking? He gonna play pro ball?" God's graces have been blessed upon him, and look where he at now. First round draft pick, Carolina Panthers. And then my next guy, and I'm talking about these two guys, but I had, you know, I had a bunch of guys like Tyrone Barges and all these other guys. I had a bunch of guys, man, that I love, and um, with DeAndre, DeAndre Scott, you know, some of my guys. But I, I love all those guys. But I think I know Tyrone. He at Westchester right now. Yes, that's my that's my dog. Yes. So um. And Denby, Stephen Denby. That's Denby. That's another one of my guys. My guys, just my guys, man. But um, you know those guys became like my little brothers, and the one who I spent the most time with, um, you know, was Yasir. Um, Yasir, and then you got Nasir Bonner, and then you had Shaka Tony. Mm-hmm. Shaka's at Penn State, I think. Nasir said. He transferred from Florida State to somewhere. I don't know where. I want to say Indiana. I may not be right. And Yasir went to Juco and now is a starting left tackle at University of Iowa. Wow. So look for these names that come out this year. Um, you know, having a great year for these young men and then coming out and exploring this team NFL-wise. But, you know, those are some of the guys that I had that I could that I, that I want to name off top. And those guys, those young men embraced me. Um, not only did I coach them, but I trained a lot of those guys. On the off season, um, I just wanted to be so involved with these young men and women. I went out and got my certification as a trainer through AAAI, um, and I just figured out how can I make how can I be that one stop shop for them to give to bring them everything full circle. I'm going to give them the the the, the spiel about being a student athlete. Talk to them about mentoring and staying away from the streets and how the girls uh, can be a downfall. I'm going to talk to them about you got to train that body, you got to eat right. You got lifting weights, you know what I'm saying? And I'm also talking about going out there and just having fun. If you ain't having fun playing football, then you're doing the wrong damn thing. And that would, if I would, if if I would have led myself, I go out there and have fun. I probably you probably wouldn't be talking right now, right? Because I didn't have fun. It was about a dollar, right? But I realized I seen so many guys out there having so much fun. I said, man, listen, I see guys out there have fun all the time. And I had some moments when I had fun, and I can remember those moments, but I can't speak on those moments of having fun latter days of my career. Right. So, you know, I spoke to those guys about a lot of those things, man, and just really talked to them and made sure that they were informed on how it's life going to be because I seen something in them. And I'm quite sure everyone else told them the same thing. Fast forward past Emotep, I go to St. Joe's Prep. And I had the pleasure of working with a guy, DeAndre Swift, coaching under Gabe Fonte, who now I already mentioned who I felt was the offensive guys that I respected and probably no one could take that respect over them. Gabe Afonte was the most sounded defensive guy I've probably ever known outside of Greg Shiano or Randy Melvin. And they're college coaches. Yeah. So you're comparing the high school coach and college coaches. I'm comparing NFL coaches. NFL coaches, I'm sorry. To a high school coach. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, Gabe just, for one, he's a great leader. Let's just get that right. He's a great leader. Two, he's a Jersey guy like me. So when he's going off and really like really, really putting his own on thing, 
me, I look back at him, like, he's just, he's crazy. He's from Jersey, he's crazy. I already, I know what it is. I don't feel no kind of way. I embrace that. He's from Jersey. I know where that energy coming from. So right. it didn't bother me. And I'm not saying it bother other coaches, but I, but I, I immediately, um, related to him. Related to him. Yeah. Yes. And man, he went and taught me so much, man. Um, I learned so much from not only him, but from my guy I mentioned earlier, Kitty Crispina, who, if you had to put position work on something, he's the best defensive back coach probably. I'll put him, put him next to anybody. He, he, he'll work. He'll work. He can prepare him. NFL, college, whatever. Kitty Crispina. He yeah. do that DB he's, thing. He's that dude. Yeah. He's that dude. <laughs> but, um, you know, St. Joe's prep was great. Went there my first year. Um, we won a championship. States. State championship, yes. And in the last two years, we didn't win the championship. Well, no, we did. We No, we didn't win. We didn't win. The third year, I ended up not finishing the season. Um, I ended up resigning. And I can't really remember why. Um, I go through, a, sometimes I go through depression moments. Mm-hmm. And um, I wanted to. I want to hold the accountability for me resigning. Was I was depressed? Um, I lost my parents recently, and I, in the last year, um, that last year, me coaching, my dad died, mm. and I couldn't. I just, I just couldn't do it no more. Um, right. I was depressed, you know, and I couldn't pull myself out of it. And I'm the type of guy, like you know, like I, when I step a step away from Emotep, if I'm not giving 100, percent I don't want to do it no more. And I wasn't given 100%, and I just had to step away from it. And I did not want also want to focus on school, um, you know, um, schooling and stuff like that, and trying to really figure out if I want to do this master's program or things of that nature, you know. So, um, and I was going through some stuff at work, um, at the job I formerly worked at. But, you know, I had a lot of things going on mentally that, um, that I just couldn't focus on football at the time. And I think a lot of it was just a lot of just removing me to get me to focus on more than the sport. Focus on your own thing, your baby. And that's what that's exactly what ensued after. Um after me pretty much, you know, stepping down resigning from St. Joe's Prep, I end up taking another shot, um, working at Camden Catholic, uh, with a former employee from from uh from Glenn Mills, and it just it just wasn't it was just a terrible situation that I just had to remove myself from. Now, I could have been the terrible piece of that puzzle. I don't know. Right. You know what I'm saying? Um, I don't think I was. Um, I was never told I was, but um, I just had to remove myself from the situation. Like, I don't, I'm not in this business to be in any toxic situation. I'm here to coach kids and I can't be around toxicity. So I left and I haven't, and, and I ain't gonna say I vowed to never coach again, but I have not coached again. And um, again, like how I told you, I won't disclose, I won't give an exclusive interview to nobody unless it's the right situation today was the right situation for to give me an, to give an exclusive interview and i probably will never coach again unless given the right situation right um if never coach again i'm fine with that you know i'm you very said, fine you sound like me i'm very fine i'm content i'm um I, I definitely won a lot of championships on all levels that i coached on and um i'm cool with saying i really um how you could say i really influenced a lot of young men to be some great student athlete and men post football right and i'm happy with that no that's good man i really i really you know you've been a probably a good influence on me you know because 
we probably got like a, probably close to like maybe eight, ten year age gap probably. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably more than that, but I don't want to disclose. But I always tell the homies like like we don't have no old heads, right? And when I met you working at Windmills, um, how you carried yourself, how the kids respected you, how the um, the staff respected you, even though they give you a hard time confronting you the one time, but just trust me, when I was getting hired, yo, we got NFL players that work here now. They were they were like big on you. Mm-hmm. Um, but like ever since I met you, I just like felt like like I could kind of model some of the things about me after you. Right. Um, so it's, it's dope to just see a lot of your stuff manifesting. You know, when I scroll the gram and I see your name and he put on another camp and he did this and I'm like proud. You know, um, me and Kanemo would say these things like. When you really got love for people, when they accomplish them, you feel like you accomplished. You feel them. like you did it. You feel Correct. like you did it. So, so Correct. I'm saying watching you, and I feel like that. Like listening to you talk, um, even your growth from when I knew you, from when I met you to now, your growth is just speak a thousand times better. You're so much more like into your professionalism and how it looks. Like I'm proud. Like you know, I'm super Thank proud. You, you know Thank what I mean? You. So, man, I just want to see you keep doing your thing, man. Um, my last one of my last questions is, who is Raheem more now? Okay, so um, not as a correction of Barry, but uh, for the correct pronunciation of my name is Abdul Rahim McCormick Senior. So just want everybody to know that. Um, and I, you know, I went for Rahim so long, so but it's it's actually Abdul. So Abdul Rahim, <clears throat> who am who am I? I want to say I'm a great father, but I'll take good. I'll take good. Huh? I'll take good. Um, I'm a father. I'm a soon-to-be grandfather. Wow. Um, I'm a mentor. I am a, a business owner. I am a, a influencer. Um, I am a role model. For sure. I'm a role model. Um, I'm humble. I'm a very humble person. Um, and I think that's the most important thing. I Not the most important thing, but I think that's one of the really important things that I have to mention is that I'm humble. Um, and I'm humble um, because I understand now my place and, and, and I'm very in tune with my, with my lifestyle of Islam. And it humbles me. And, and, and last but least, I'm a selfless person. Um, you mean more to me than I mean to myself. Wow. And I, and I honestly mean that. And I try to, I try to make everyone around me feel good. There's not a person on this earth that I that I I've passed in the last probably ten years that I haven't said, "Hey, how you doing? How you doing today?" I speak to everybody, and a lot of my networks come from me just saying, "Hey, how you doing?" They say, "I'm good, man. Thanks for asking. How you doing?" And it's, and, and, and what I get people is, if you ever see me in the street, see me in passing, "Hey, right, how you doing?" There's two things I'm gonna say. I ain't making no noise. I'm just trying to stay out of the way. <laughs> and those are my favorite two lines. Yep. And I'm never going to, I'm never making noise, but everybody say, well, you making noise, but it's not noise for me. Mm. It's not my noise. You know what I'm saying? You'll never hear my noise. And, and right. when I mean staying out of the way, um, I'm always trying to get out of my way so that I'm always trying to get out of my way because my biggest problem is I have always been in my own way. So when I say I'm staying out of the way, meaning I'm just getting the hell out of my own way and allowing me to really get out there. 
That's dope, man. Mm-hmm. Um, recommend me three former athletes that got a great story to tell that I can help, you know, use their story to mentor the youth. So you got the athletes in mind that you would recommend to come do the podcast, you know, pr- preferably somebody local. Okay. Um, hmm. I have so many, so many men that's in my head. Um, do we need to an answer now? Yeah, just, just recommend me. Okay. Okay. So, okay. Three right. former athletes. Malik Brown. Malik Brown. University of North Carolina is from Camden, New Jersey. So many of them just okay. So Malik Brown. So um, tell me about Malik Brown because I'm not familiar. Okay, so Malik is um, Malik is a guy younger than me. I, I want to say he's a little bit older than you, but he's younger than me. Malik is a guy that I'm he's from Camden, New Jersey. And I remember when I met Malik is when back in Rutgers when Shion took a job. Um, the, the saying was, if you want to win in New Jersey, you have to keep the players home. Shion immediately to that concept. So he came to me one day and said, listen, I'm going to bring the top 50 players in New Jersey into this building. I want you to talk to him. The hell am I talking about? Right. He said, go in and be you. Oh, go keep it you real. You know who I am? <laughs> you going to scare him off? I'm like, you know who I am? <laughs> like, yeah, I want you to go be you. Cool. You can probably look it up. This, this, this night, it was a famous night in Rutgers football history. It's the reason... This is not me saying this, and I can pull text up my phone right now of our group, our Rutgers football group chat, and it'll say, that talk is the reason why you had the top defensive lineman and top running back in New Jersey, in the, in the country, come to Rutgers, decommit from wherever they is at to come to Rutgers. The reason why you had other top players decommit from the school to come to Rutgers, I sat and talked to them about an hour and a half, and... It was the realest thing I ever spoke. You remember some of the things you said? Now I'm intrigued. I just told them, I'm sick and tired of being from this state and people don't respect me for my ball. Mm. So I need some guys to get behind me or get beside me, however you want to do it, get in front of me. But it's time to go kick the kick nation's ass from that stadium right there. We was up looking on the stadium. I said, from that stadium, I want to start kicking ass in that stadium. And I want to change the thoughts of what people think about football players and football, the game of football in New Jersey. And I can't do it unless I got y'all with me. Elaborate on a lot of other stuff, you know, explain them what goes on the campus, how campus life was just like home life. You know what I'm saying? Mm. You know, and, 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 and how you had the support and how for me, it was important that my mom made it to me in every in every game that she could make it to. That was my big. That was my fan. My best games is when I turn, I look behind my state, behind my bleachers, and I see my mom. And this is our thing. So if I didn't get that, I'm off. And if I turn around at the one machine in there, I, I'm almost gonna tell you I ain't starting this game. 
But she made sure she was there. And she knew the importance of being there to start my games because she knew I had to, we had to do that. Right. So, and I told them the most important person I needed in my game, my mother. Just, I, I'll, I, I'll play my heart out every day in front of her because I want to impress her every time. And a lot of those guys felt that. And a lot of those guys had mom was there, was there, was there, was that their main, their main, how you call it, main, their biggest fan. Yeah. And so they, um, so this is they the, wanted that. So this is before like the Ray Rice era there? This is before I even played a football down at Rutgers. I never played it down at Rutgers in my life at that point. Oh, you were still in that I was in still that, ineligible. In that period. I was oh. still ineligible. And they brought you in the recruit? They brought me in to speak to talk. To, to talk. I talked to the top 50 recruits. Now remember, I'm the top linebacker in the country. So I can relate to these top guys. Right. Right? You know, either, either some of them ranked up there with me or, or I were, it was all, all higher. You know what I'm saying? But um, those guys can relate to me. I can relate to them. And and again, I have never played a down football in my life. Of college football. Of college football. And Shiano chose me. And you, you, you got LJ Smith, you got Nate Jones, you got all these other guys. And not knocking them, but for some reason he chose me. Why? I don't know. He knew. I didn't. But I said I can't let him down. This is my this is my this is my first impression on, on him leaning on me. I gotta show this guy that he could depend on me. And I showed my butt. No, that's what's up. Um, and when he needed something done on that field, I needed to play. Got you, dog. No problem. If I didn't make a play, I'm gonna try to break my damn neck trying to get to it, trying to make it happen for you. Mm. You know what I'm saying? But that's 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 how it went, you know what I'm saying? But you know, that's my whole thing was I wanted I wanted people to see Jersey football as different. And Mike Brown was one of them guys that came. Malik Brown was one Malik, of the guys that came Malik up. Brown. Correct. Malik Brown was one of the guys that came up and Malik's story was like mine, you know. Malik uh brother um was also a big time football player too. You know what I'm saying? So that influence of being pulled on that stuff like that, you know, and everything else was going on. Um, but Malik was a guy, I think he has a, I think he has a, a very good story. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I don't know his story post. I don't know his whole story. Mm-hmm. I know his story post college and the great things he's doing now. Okay. You know, but I'm sure he has a story prior to, and I know a little bit of it, but I want him to disclose it. But yeah. he do have a story, yeah. you know. Definitely link us together if you can. You yeah, know? man. Um, you can't run no, no If I can't, listen, so if I can't remember no names, man, how about I just send you some people and say, hey, listen, you can sit and talk to them over the phone and see do you want to bring them in or not if the story is enough or however you choose to utilize them. You can yeah, have that, you know what I'm saying? Because I'm always willing to help you out, especially if a guy got a story that can help benefit and get out there and talk and get a message out. I'm all for that. And I'll definitely send me away. Not a problem at all. No, I appreciate yeah. it. Um, I just want to make sure you cover, you know, you do a lot of great things. I want to make sure that you reference everything that you wanted to reference mm-hmm. and talk about all the great things that you're doing right now and okay. how, how the people can find you. Right, right. Um, okay, so you can find me on Instagram at Raheem underscore or, or you can find us, find find my company at well, on Instagram, more than a sport, New Jersey, on Instagram. You can also go to our website, which um, I will be leaving the podcast and going home and updating, putting a lot of pictures from the football camp and things that we just did. Because um, we had a really big, really big football camp uh, in New Jersey. We kept it low cost for the parents and we provided uniforms, top and bottom, uh, football gloves with our, our logos on it, on the, on the inside, 
um, compression socks for our little ones, water bottles and hats uh, for the children. And if you had to project the number, what would you think that price? What would you, what would you think that costs a parent to send a kid to get all that? Just to get all that's all that all comes free with your registration. Wow, that's that's that sounds like hundreds hundreds of dollars worth of stuff, right? I charge seventy five dollars. Wow. And I knew I was going to take a hit financially on it, but it was more important for for me to to give them these kids this world class camp because I remember hearing parents saying, "I can't afford to send my kid this FBU camp, but I want them to go there and be around these NFL players and get them." And okay, so so oh, so you like NFL players, right? You like to get uniforms, cool, right? Okay, right, cool. I know NFL players. I can get uniforms. So I just listen to the, what the parents want for their kids, but I also know that the pockets sometimes is not there. So I try to make it affordable for everybody, and that's why we, we operate the way we do. But we just did that football camp um, June 26th to the 29th, and we also gave them a free carnival on that Saturday. Wow. The 29th, we did a carnival, and we had free food for the kids, and we had bouncy houses and games and music DJ out there. We did it. We, we did it really big, and all that was for seventy five dollars. And also, we fed the kids every day lunch, fed them lunch, Gatorade beverages, chips, snacks, everything every day, and we did all that for seventy five dollars. And who's 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 some of the people that come help you run these camps? Because it can't just be you. Okay, so it's my team. Shout out to uh, to the Morning Sport Board. Um, Whitney Frazier, Darren Smith, Sam Limbrick, Betsy Latine, Alchemist Frazier, Linwood Bagby, Jonathan Alvarez, um, and then to our volunteer staff. You know, um, we had we had about 20 volunteers out there helping out. Um, you know, we had um, my buddy Marcus Washington, if you're in New Jersey, um, in the Union County area, he has a company called Art Techniques, and he does everything from sports rehabilitation to sports training. He was there to help out my boy Dorian um, who runs Fourth and Goal organization? He was out there helping the Linden Tigers um, coaching staff. Pop Warner, Linden Tigers, Pop Warner's uh, coaching staff came out and helped out. Um, Larry Bazin, um, who was my family member, who helped out with the field and make sure the field and everything was set up and and cleared and clean so that we could have access to it. Um, I had a bunch of NFL guys come out. Um, a lot of my teammates, Brandon Hall, Ron Simone, um, and just to speak on Brandon. Brandon uh, Hall, Brandon Hall, and Ron Simone. We partnered with them, and we have a thing called the After School Program. So look out for that, and you can uh, go on there and look. But if you go on there and just probably Google the After School Program, you'll see what we got going on. And that's pretty much a program we have where we're going to be tutoring the kids after school, and then after we finish tutoring them, we're going to hook the PlayStations up. We have about seven TVs hooked up on the TVs, and then we'll have our kids playing against Philadelphia kids to be playing against. New Jersey kids, and then we'll be white NFL players, NBA players that come out and play NFL, John Madden 2019 against the, the, the kids. Or from their house, we have access because we have access to these players at their house too. We got a lot of players that signed on. So they'll be at their house, and our kids will be playing against them one-on-one Madden, and then we'll have NBA guys playing against the kids in the NBA 2K and all those type of things. So that's one thing we have going on. But I have Bernard Pierce, a Temple guy, Philadelphia guy, who's a family member of mine. He came out um, we had Clifton Smith, Syracuse University. We had Berkeley Hutchinson, Rutgers University. We had uh, Bart Glasgow, Elizabeth University, Elizabeth High School, Monmouth University, uh, works for U.S. government. We had Javon Parker, Rutgers University, uh, Baltimore Ravens, Cleveland Browns. Um, who else we had? 
we had a bunch of NFL guys come out. Can't name them all right now because it's like a whole list on my mind. It's just no, it's kind of worn out because I had a long day. But it's a crazy list. You know, we had a bunch of guys. We had we had we had twenty NFL players come out who also were the coaches. They didn't come out just sit and talk and leave. They came out. We coached hand on. And if you when you get to my website, which is www.morethanasport, uh, m o r e t h a n a sport dot com. Um, you'll be able to see our pictures from the camp. You'll see a lot of these guys out there. You'll see the uniforms. You'll see we had sponsorship from the NFLPA, from the NFL, um, Philadelphia Soul, Rutgers University, um, Celebrations Web Designs, um, PEP, which is Parents Engaging Parents. We, they donated Restored Ministries, um, donated time, effort, and money. And we just we just had everything nice and organized. Um, because one thing that I love to see is us as a people. One thing we lack is organization, mm-hmm. like being organized. Right. And we were very organized. And that was the biggest compliment that everyone gave. They said, man, we came down there. The camp was nice. The kids loved it. And you guys were organized. And that opened up other opportunities for us. you know. And that's what you want. Right. You, know, you want an opportunity to come up. But again, um, if you want to kind of stay up with us and see what's going on, um, www.more then T-H-A-N, asport.com. Um, you can also find us on Twitter. Let me just look at the name. I don't really keep a lot of stuff in my hand. The <laughs> name, and I apologize uh, for having to do this, but I really want to get the information out there, so just bear with me for one quick second. And it's the the Twitter name is The New More Than A Sport. Um, I had a former Twitter page that I kind of messed up, changing the birth date and all this other stuff, which... There's no birthday for more than sport, but right. the day that I posted was whatever, messed it up and locked the account. I can never reopen it. But um, the new more than the sport on Twitter, um, Facebook is more than the sport. You know, it's more than the sport on Facebook. You can follow me on that. And um, so when do you, how many camps do you run a year or how often? Currently, so we're set up to run three. Camps a year. We have we have allotted in our bylaws to run three camps a year. I found out that we can do way more than that, but currently we only focus on one camp because we only have one definite location. And typically, when you want to run a camp in out of state at a different location, you kind of kind of go through the you know all the stipulations of getting the permits. And a lot of times, when you get these permits. It's a calendar that's already out there set. So we're going to get ahead of these things now. So next year, expect four to five camps from us because we're going to get a jump on these permit registrations in January. We're going to pay for them and lock these permits down. So Philadelphia, expect a camp. There's going to be a camp in New Jersey. Um, we're, we're, I, I guess we kind of outgrew my city of Elizabeth um, and also looking for a better support system. So we're going to move our camp outside of Elizabeth to, to follow the support, where the support's coming from, and make it a bigger, and have it a, a real bigger camp. Eventually, I want to be at Rutgers or MetLife Stadium, Lincoln Financial, wherever we at. We want to be in these type of arenas during our camps. But definitely expect um, at least three camps, a minimum of three camps in New Jersey and two camps in Pennsylvania. And if everything works out, I will be traveling to California, Northern California, to put a camp on in the Sacramento area. So that's six camps for next year. On top of us doing our basketball league and running our flag football league that we're trying to, we don't have, 
the league up and running yet. We're still going through like the um, I guess you could see like all the the input and things that need to go into the startup a of, league, of yeah. a league. Yes, so we're trying to do that, and we don't know do we want to do it through an AAU sort of channel or do we want to kind of create our own league and just have it. You know, we developed it, we created, we developed it and run it. We haven't came up with that honestly yet, but we have time because we're looking to do this and, and, to, and to incorporate this in the spring of 2020. So, um, you know, man, we're looking to make some noise, man, and we're looking to really help others. Most importantly, I want everyone to know that if you are in the process or if you do have an idea of wanting to become organized and figure out how you can do those type of things, you can always contact me at r.orrmtas at gmail.com and share your ideas with me. And I'm almost positive if I can't help, I can direct you in the direction that you can't help. But one of the things that we have become is an organization that's helping to organize others. Um, of course, there's a fee and all these type of things because everyone's time is money. Um, and I won't be the only one that's lending my time. My team will be lending our time and expertise to you to help you to be successful. Right. Um, so if you look for any of these things or if anyone looking for those type of things, um, please feel free to reach out to me. Um, and again, that's r.orrmtas at gmail.com. No, man, I want to thank you for coming up here, man. Sharing that story, man. I've been trying to get you for weeks, man. I'm happy we finally got it. years, because when you first started last year, you was, I think you were trying to get me a, a month ago. I remember it was months you were trying to get me in. Yeah. You yeah. know, I've been, um, you know, I, I, me personally, man, um, you know, I deal with a lot of, like I said, it's come back to the head again, so I forget. Um, and now, now that me embarking on becoming an organized person, you say something to me, now I put it on the phone. So that's why when I knew I was late or I knew something was going on, it popped up my calendar. I got to call Lou and let him know I'm going to be late and be now I'm professional with it. I don't just forget things now. I'm like, okay, all right, I see this on my calendar. Am I going to be able to make it? Let's give enough time to reschedule and be respectful of others' time. If I know that if you just said, right, I can't reschedule, then you know what? I would have broke neck and got down here. I would have been driving my, my car like I ride my motorcycle back, <laughs> how I used to ride my motorcycle back in the day in Hotel, you know, but thank God, you know, we was able to schedule and I made it here today, man, but I'm here for you, brother. And whatever you need for me to help you to grow, um, you got my cell phone number. You got every anybody contact with. We brothers. Forget, you know, all of this is all well and good, but we brothers before that. And you always gonna reach out to me. My networks is your networks. I appreciate it, man. Thank you for coming through, man. I appreciate you, man. Think well, put that soon.